Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York with you for the next hour. And we begin with the latest from Ukraine. Explosions in Kyiv and an attack just six miles from NATO's eastern frontier as the conflict escalates. Homes in the capital were targeted, as well as this military base not far from the border with Poland. The White House warning attacks on NATO territory will trigger a full response. Meanwhile, new video out of Mariupol showing Russian tanks blasting an apartment building. The mayor's office says some residents have managed to escape from the city. And tragically, a pregnant woman wounded by shelling at the city's maternity hospital last week has passed away, along with her unborn child. As a fourth round of talks between the two nations gets underway, President Zelensky repeated his call to the West for NATO to enforce a no-fly zone. If you do not close our sky, it's only a matter of time before Russian missiles fall on your territory, NATO territory on the homes of citizens of NATO countries. And a potential sign of the escalating pressure on Russia, Moscow asked China for military and financial assistance. That, according to two U.S. officials, both Moscow and Beijing are denying the claims. And in the last few moments, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky releasing a fresh statement urging his people to stand firm against Russian aggression. We must hold on. We must keep on the struggle in order to win and get to a peace that Ukrainians deserve, an honest peace with security guarantees for our state, for our people, in order to put this down on paper. Negotiations are difficult, and today we have started a video conference meeting between the delegations. Everybody is waiting for the news. Tonight, we will report back to you. And as President Zelensky said there, those talks are happening virtually today. Now for the latest, Chris Award is in Kyiv and just spoke to my colleague, Brianna Keeler. So there's been a lot of fighting going on here all day, Brianna, and in fact, we can still hear it rumbling away in the background coming from that direction. But the explosions that you're referring to were just a few hours ago uh, coming from this direction. My cameraman, Scotty McWinney, was actually able to capture an image of the jet trails in the sky. It appears what happened is that Ukrainian missile defense batteries were activated, targeting uh, what we believe to be a Russian jet. We don't have any sort of clarity on that, but that's what we believe happened. All of this contributing to a picture of intensified fighting, particularly here in the capital. You mentioned uh, that airstrike or rather missile strike, we can't be sure which it was, um, or shelling even, frankly, in the suburb of Obolon, which hit an apartment building. You can see the images of that residential building, civilians living there remarkably 
Only one person was killed. Several were injured. One can only assume that a lot of people have already evacuated from this city. And we're also getting reports of uh, of a major incident in Donetsk. Now, Donetsk is uh, the sort of capital, if you will, of the one of these pro-Russian separatist enclaves or breakaway republics. Um, the images that have been coming in, images and videos, CNN has been able to geolocate them, appear to show at least several fatalities on a main street in Donetsk. The Donetsk uh, sort of pro-Russian separatist leader has claimed that it was a Ukrainian Tochka U missile and has claimed that 20 people were killed. CNN cannot independently uh, verify those claims at all, but certainly all of this leading to an increase in fighting, increase in tensions, more and more civilians being killed as a result of that. You mentioned uh, the ongoing negotiations between the Ukrainian delegation and the Russian delegation. Those are taking place today uh, via video teleconference. They're not in person, but certainly uh, increasing pressure for the Russians to agree to some kind of a ceasefire, even if it's only a temporary ceasefire, particularly to get people out of those besieged areas. Uh, You mentioned Mariupol where that woman and her baby were tragically killed uh, in the hit on the maternity hospital there, but hundreds of thousands of civilians still pinned under with no food, no water. They've tried many times to try to get humanitarian aid in and try to evacuate civilians uh, as part of the humanitarian corridor. Uh, So far, no success in that. We'll see where the day leads in terms of these negotiations, whether there's any possibility or glimmer of hope at trying to help some of the civilians trapped there. And as Clarissa mentioned, officials from Russia and Ukraine are at this hour holding their latest round of ceasefire talks. Ukraine's negotiator warning that, quote, hard discussions lie ahead. Natasha Bertrand is following the talks from Brussels. Natasha, good to have you with us. And unlike the previous three times where nothing really came of these talks, there does seem to be a little greater sense of optimism. And I I couch it very carefully, but there does seem to be from both sides heading into these talks at least. There is a bit, Julia, yeah, and the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, actually said of the U.S., Wendy Sherman said yesterday that she does believe that there have been signs that the Russians might be willing to negotiate in good faith, more serious about negotiations moving forward. But the Russians uh, and the Ukrainians are still very cautiously optimistic about this. The Ukrainians have said that, of course, there was no major breakthrough in talks last week with the Russians in Turkey. Of course, that is when the Russian and Ukrainian foreign ministers met to try to hammer out a way forward. And the problem, essentially, was that the real decision maker here is Vladimir Putin. And of course, Zelensky and Putin are not speaking directly. Zelensky has said that he is willing to speak with Putin, but that offer has not been taken up as of yet. So the problem is that the Ukrainian and the Russian delegations are speaking, but of course, the main decision maker, the the main uh, person calling all of the shots in this operation is Putin himself. And Putin has been speaking to European leaders, importantly. He has been speaking to the French president and uh, the the German chancellor, for example. They have been in regular communication. He has also been speaking with uh, 
the Israeli prime minister. The United States has been watching all of this uh, very trepidatiously, looking at how uh, the Europeans have been communicating with Putin and how he has been communicating his military plans to them. No signs there either of a major breakthrough. According to the readouts we've gotten from uh, the French uh, presidential office, they do not see that Putin is willing to pull back at this point. In fact, they see they, they get a sense that he is only uh, more emboldened and more willing to carry out his operation. And, and move forward towards uh, the full destruction of the country. That is also something that the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, said on Sunday. So really, uh, there's a cautious sense of optimism that maybe they will be able to get certain kind of hard uh, objectives uh, achieved here, namely a ceasefire, for example, or the implementation of new humanitarian corridors. But in terms of an actual agreement that both sides can come to uh, that would make Russia actually pull back from this conflict, that still seems to be a long ways away. Julia. Yes, and we shall wait for the outcome of those talks and find out. Natasha Bertrand there. Lots going on elsewhere, of course, to the suggestion perhaps denied by both China and Russia that Russia has requested help from China, both on an economic front and beyond. You have to say a, a growth environment in China that's challenged would likely further pressure global growth, the supply chain crisis and worse than the already severe inflationary pressures that are being fueled by the Ukraine conflict. And that's why we have a look at the Asia session first, certainly reflected. You can see that the Hang Seng down almost 5%. China shares weaker too. A marked contrast to what we see in the West. European stocks firmer after 3% losses for German and French indices last week. US futures steady after five weeks of declines for the Dow. Investors perhaps sensing a shift as we've been discussing. The pressure on Russia escalating rumors that it asked China for help. That would, of course, confirm that. The upshot being perhaps Mr. Putin is ready to compromise. We'll see. The energy complex, though, seemingly reflecting that hope, too, after falling 5% last week, as you can see, a little bit more easing going on there. Brent crude trading just above $108 a barrel. Just for context, though, both up 15% for the month and 40% year to date. A critical week ahead for investors with the U.S. central bank set to raise rates for the first time in more than three years. There's also remains the very real threat of a Russian debt default this week. Two key international bond payments coming due for Russia on Wednesday. Russia's finance ministry threatening to make the payments in rubles rather than dollars, given the country's inability to tap much of its foreign reserves, a violation of the bonds contracts. In the meantime, Russia denying an exclusive report from the Wall Street Journal that it threatened Western businesses. Over the weekend, the Russian embassy in the United States called the report, quote, pure fiction, adding the West should, quote, abandon the vicious practice of spreading fake news. The journal says Russian prosecutors are warning Western companies they will seize assets or arrest any corporate leaders in the country who decide to stop operating in Russia. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna. I mean, the ship's already sailed on much of that. A lot of American Western companies have said, look, we're going to stop operating. The two that come to mind that we've discussed many times, the likes of, of Coca-Cola and McDonald's. And it follows reporting from last week that the Russian government had said, look, we may reopen these businesses and operate them themselves. 
Yeah, we already had the threat of nationalization, but the report from the Wall Street Journal also suggested that business leaders were being threatened via calls, emails, visits um, with arrest if they criticized the Kremlin. Now, as you say, that has been flatly denied by the Russian embassy in D.C., uh, which called the report fake news, a complete work of fiction. They also had this really interesting line at the end of the statement, which said, even in the most difficult situation, U.S. commercial interests in the capacious Russian market are not infringed in any way, which I thought was incredibly interesting because even leaving aside the fact that uh, they're, they're facing sanctions, obviously international sanctions, the economy is frankly in free fall towards a recession. There's the very obvious fact that actually the central bank has implemented strict capital controls that do target foreign businesses, even if they haven't decided to leave the Russian market. This is not going to do anything for business confidence, which is absolutely shattered. And that's actually regardless of what happens, I think, in Ukraine. I think that's not returning anytime soon. Julia? Yeah, it's so important. When I saw those headlines from last week, it's it's property rights. It's any hope of trust between foreign governments, foreign businesses and Russia completely broken. And it was echoed by, I believe, Russia's richest man who was saying, please don't do this. It's going to take Russia back 100 years. That was the president of the biggest nickel business in mm. Russia. So a voice that really resonates. And he said, yes, it'll take the country back more than 100 years. He also said that the global distrust of Russia on the part of investors would take decades to restore. And I think it's really important that we keep considering some of the dissent that we have seen from Russian businessmen, from oligarchs, from people who matter to President Putin and the Kremlin. It builds, for instance, on comments from Mikhail Friedman, from Oleg Deripaska. Both are now subject to sanctions. And also also, actually, last week on Russian, TV, Russian State TV, Channel One, in prime time, it was The Tonight Show with uh, uh, Vladimir Solyov, I believe. And it was a panel discussion, Julia, where both guests were highly critical, really, of the Kremlin. One said, do we need to get into another Afghanistan, but even worse? And the other suggested that actually the opinion of the Russian masses is changing, which just goes to show that, yes, these sanctions are punishing everyone from business leaders to ordinary Russians, but that impact, you know, for the actions of their president, but that impact is biting and it is clearly having um, some change here in terms of the opinion that the uh, sort of, I guess, the denials, the conflict we're seeing, it's coming in dribs and drabs, but it's really important we highlight it. Yeah. And as we've said in the past, you can hide with news media, with state-owned news media, to a greater extent what's taking place somewhere else. But when ordinary people feel the pressures of economic sanctions, that's tough to mask. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Russia has requested military and economic assistance from Beijing, according to U.S. officials, as I already mentioned. This comes as the U.S. and China hold talks in Rome today. We are communicating directly, privately to Beijing that there will absolutely be consequences for uh, large-scale sanctions, evasion efforts, or support uh, to Russia to backfill them. We will not allow that to go forward and allow there to be a, a lifeline to Russia from these economic sanctions from any country anywhere in the world. Both Russia and China are denying the claims. David Cover joins us now. David, great to have you with us. It does certainly fit the narrative, as I was just discussing with Anna there, that Russia is coming under increasing pressure. And we know this because we can see it in terms of financial assets in particular and, and behaviours from individuals. The question is, does China and is China willing to risk secondary sanctions with the West in order to provide economic, perhaps even military support to Russia? 
And those are likely, Julia, the discussions that were held just a short time ago between China's top foreign diplomat, and, and that is the, the official who really has the ear of President Xi Jinping, a key advisor to President Xi, that's Yang Jiechi, and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. So they met in Rome a, a short time ago. We don't yet know the details of that meeting, but it's very likely that on the agenda uh, were some of those discussions as to how Beijing was going to handle the Ukraine crisis, one that they have been really trying to balance uh, this tightrope act in between, trying to stay neutral, trying to portray themselves as peacemakers, saying that they could even be mediators between Ukraine and Russia. And then on the other side, they've been trying to say that they still have this no limits relationship between Russia uh, and themselves. And so this is a very difficult and challenging situation for them to try to navigate here and one that could be even more treacherous should they try to align themselves with Russia through military and economic aid. Now, as you point out, both sides have denied that. Those are U.S. officials who have said that they uh, believe Russia has asked Beijing for its assistance, both Beijing and Moscow saying that is not true. Those are the U.S. officials peddling lies, disinformation, as the foreign ministry here in China has portrayed it. But it does raise the question, how will Beijing act in the coming days and weeks. They're at a point now where they may have to take a stance here. They may have to align themselves with Russia. And in doing so, do they then feel the brunt of more sanctions and economic hurt here that could cause uh, even greater problems? However, at, at the same time in doing so, President Xi would ideologically align himself with President Putin and, and kind of create this East versus West uh, alliance that, that may in fact take shape. Or the alternative is, does China say, no, we're going to discuss with uh, the West and, and the EU and US in particular, the two largest trading partners that China deals with, and try to figure out a way to defuse the situation in Ukraine, try to save some face with Russia, their northern neighbors, and then move on looking perhaps from a PR perspective, pretty good from all of this. That may be the route that Chinese officials are going to try to go. But it, Julia, it is a very challenging one at this point to try to navigate and figure out where their next move is going to be. I, I think it seems most analysts you talk to that they're at a point now where they're going to have to take some action. It's funny, I've compared Russia and China to David and Goliath in terms of their economic size and scale mm. and weight in the world. But you could also do that with Russia and the West with the United States and Europe and the cost and consequences for China of alienating a far larger area of the world in economic right. terms, if nothing else. Um, David, very quickly, the backdrop here is also incredibly difficult for China with what they're seeing in terms of COVID cases rising. 17 million people, I believe, in Shenzhen now right. under some form of lockdown. It's an uncomfortable time to be making the wrong choice. Yeah, and an uncomfortable time for many of the people here within China, too. As you know, you look at those numbers, compare them to the rest of the world, they almost seem laughable. However, here in China, with a zero COVID approach, it's something they're determined to stick to. But you're right, this does play into that, because if they want to go forward and, and President Xi wants to help his best friend, his description, not mine, President Putin, then in doing so, could he cause more issues economically here at home? And that's combined with the COVID situation. So these lockdowns causing issues, for example, in Shenzhen, just across the border from Hong Kong, a place where Apple supplier Foxconn has had to shut down their factories. So economic impact being felt there. Or go to the industrial hub, Jilin province. They're experiencing lockdowns of tens of millions, likewise having to bring businesses to a halt. 
it's constant here. It's unpredictable. It's the uncertainty. And that's something that's playing out alongside all of what's happening with Ukraine. So it's something that the Chinese leadership has to keep in mind, because remember, Julia, one of their biggest pushes is trying to maintain prosperity for all. If that starts to be deteriorating in any manner, that could cause social stability to likewise falter. Yes, the level of the COVID cases is laughably small, but the economic and social consequences of keeping it so vast. That's right. David Culver, thank you. Stay with First Move. More to come. Welcome back to CNN. The Bank for International Settlements has suspended Russia's membership, saying its move is in line with international sanctions on Russia in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the central bank is channeling money into the country's defense and getting help where it's needed. So far, it's taken in donations worth over $400 million from all over the world for Ukraine's armed forces, including the National Guard and the Ministry of Defense. And it's asking that Russian assets frozen by foreign governments be given to Ukraine to help it rebuild. Deputy Governor of the National, National Bank of Ukraine, Sergei Nikolaychuk, joins us now. Sergei, fantastic to have you on the show. First and foremost, may I ask how you're doing, how you and your family are doing? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so my family and me personally are relatively safe as far as it's possible nowadays in Ukraine. Good to know, sir. Um, I want to talk about the immediate pressures, the financial sector. What are you seeing just in terms of use at, at cash points, pressure on the banks? Do they have enough liquidity? Mm -hmm. uh, thank you very much for this question. So far, we do our best to ensure the uh, proper functioning of the payments uh, in Ukraine and also uh, try to safeguard financial stability as much as it's possible in the current environment. Definitely, uh, our measures uh, implemented, so they include also uh, providing the cash to the uh, banking system and in order to, uh, in order to help our uh, people to, to, to receive the cash and to do their payments. Uh, more or less, uh, the situation is... Uh, is uh, stable in the regions where we don't have uh, very active military hostilities, but uh, definitely we expect experience uh, some problems with uh, uh, in in the regions there. Uh, the uh, there, there were a lot of uh, military hostilities, and uh, where it's very difficult for banks to uh, ensure that uh, ATMs, uh, for example, are completely uh, are complete, completely full of uh, of cash. Yeah, so it's it's very difficult in in parts of the east of the country, in particular. You're saying simply to to get cash out there. What is the option for people in, in those parts where the challenges are, are incredibly great in terms of the, the risk of being injured if you, if you go out? Mm -hmm. First of all, we promote uh, the cashless payments. So actually, both uh, in the regions where there are a lot of uh, military hostilities and uh, in regions where uh, there is relatively safe now. Also, we promote uh, using the uh, 
pay, uh, cards uh, uh, for people who flew in, uh, fleeing to uh, neighboring countries. Uh, from uh, our point of view, it's much uh, safer way to uh, use their uh, savings uh, in order to uh, spend uh, and uh, uh, for for their uh, for their needs. I mean, you've announced a number of support measures to to support the military in particular uh, and to provide uh, humanitarian aid. And I know you issued what we call war bonds in order to finance it. How quickly can you get that money to people? First of all, if we talk about the accounts which we opened in the first day of war, uh, so for military purposes and for humanitarian aid, so we almost immediately transfer the money collected uh, to the Ministry of uh, Defense or to the Special uh, Military Forces or to the Ministry of uh, uh, Social Policy in order to transfer them for for their purposes. And actually, this process is very smooth. And uh, once again, I would like to call everyone to support Ukrainian army and Ukrainian people. So all requisites and uh, different ways of payment are uh, available on our uh, web page uh, on on the uh, on the web page of our central bank. And uh, also, if we talk about uh, the uh, other. Uh, measures to support uh, the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian people. So what we do as the central bank. So in these uh, circumstances, we started to uh, purchase the war bonds. We do it in very limited amounts uh, in order to safeguard uh, financial and price stability in the country. So far, we see. Uh, so far, we, see, we we do our best to combine all these uh, all these tasks again, supporting the Ukrainian army, Ukrainian people, but at the same time, save safeguarding financial and price stability. I but know. in order to make this process uh, actually sustainable definitely we need uh, external support we do we work uh, very closely now with our official partners with international financial institutions and actually this uh, this work brings already some results but definitely we need uh, much more so you're saying that that people can make donations via your website as you've said you've done these war bonds but in very limited supply and i know it was one year maturity and that the cost of that the interest rate 11 percent. so it's incredibly expensive to do that which i think people need to understand and you also said you've received or will receive international financial support to the tune of a 15 billion dollars it's okay it's tough to get a sense of the spending the money that you had the money that's coming in the, the timing of that how long can you survive with what's going on and keep providing money and maintaining stability. I know it's tough to see how long the conflict lasts, but, but how long can you maintain the economy, the country uh, under this pressure? Definitely that, yeah, yeah, I understand the pressure is enormous and, uh, and uh, 
at the same time, enormous uh, our efforts, efforts of the Ukrainian army, of the Ukrainian people, and definitely in the central bank, we also try to do our best in order to ensure the financial stability in our country on uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we try to do as much harm as it's possible uh, for uh, Russian financial system in order to increase the cost and lower the uh, financial potential for to finance this war. Actually, for that purpose, we uh, work a lot. Uh, we communicate a lot with our uh, different our partners in order to in order to uh, shrink uh, the possibilities of the Russia to uh, to finance uh, finance uh, the war. Sergey, the governor of the central bank suggested that the assets that have been taken from Russian oligarchs that have been seized around the world and the reserves that have been frozen should be given to Ukraine to help rebuild when and if that can be done. Do you agree with that? And have you had any discussions with with foreign leaders who have suggested that might be possible? Uh, you know, our current priority is to survive. Definitely, we need the financial support for this purpose, first of all. But uh, definitely, when uh, Russian invaders will be uh, will left Ukrainian land, we will have uh, the massive uh, financial needs in order to restore, uh, rebuild uh, the infrastructure, rebuild uh, the buildings, uh, recover, uh, restore the Ukrainian economy, and uh, definitely we will need uh, to find some uh, financing sources for them. Uh, as uh, governor mentioned, uh, so the assets of Russian oligarchs, assets of the Russian central bank. Uh, uh, look like uh, quite reasonable, I would say, uh, source of financing for these purposes, taking into account uh, taking into account the reason of this uh, uh, all this damage done in Ukraine. Sergey, very quickly, you know better than most the impact of sanctions, what capital controls, the damage that's being wrought in the Russian economy. What more do you want to see? Because I know President Zelensky spoke to President Biden over the weekend and asked for more. What more do you want to see the West do in order to curtail Russian economic activity mm-hmm. and pressure Vladimir Putin? Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very much. First of all, I should say that uh, a lot uh, has been done already. And uh, what we now do, actually, we try to find some loopholes how Russia may, which Russia may try to use in order to continue financing this military invasion of Ukraine. Just recently, as an example, so for example, we uh, welcome the decision of the payment systems like Visa and Mastercard to uh, freeze all operation with uh, uh, Russian cards abroad and with uh, the uh, with uh, for. Uh, cards issued by foreign banks in Russia and so on. But at the same time, for example, there is still possibility for Russian uh, people to use uh, cards uh, uh, issued by the Russian payment system MIR in some countries. And we approach these countries, that are actually eight countries, in order to suspend these operations. 
Also, for example, we asked the Chinese union pay, uh, union pay to take measures similar to ones taken by Visa and MasterCard and uh, stop servicing all operations with these payment cards in, uh, issued by banks in the Russian Federation. Yes, the message is out there. Sergey, great to chat to you, sir. Thank you so much. And um, we pray you stay safe, you and your family. The Deputy Governor of the National Bank of Ukraine yeah. will speak again. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. And a reminder of our top story from Ukraine. Homes in the capital, Kiev have become the latest target of Russian shelling. One person was killed and six were hurt when an apartment block came under fire. A search and rescue operation is currently underway. The devastation in Ukraine is leaving essential medicines in short supply too. The US humanitarian organization Direct Relief is one of the world's largest distributors of donated medical supplies. It's working with Ukraine's health ministry and partners on the ground to deliver medical emergency supplies, everything from insulin syringes to painkillers. And joining us now is Thomas Tyke. He's the CEO of Direct Relief. Thomas, thank you for making time. I know you and your team are incredibly busy at this moment. You were already working with Ukraine, I believe, delivering COVID-related medicines and some specialist cancer treatments. And then, of course, the requirements shifted dramatically. Right. No, I think, fortunately, that that backbone was already built for the communication and logistics uh, and approved by the ministry, which uh, unfortunately is now needed more than ever. So that's what we've been trying to work through and mobilize both from the states from our distribution center in the Netherlands, and over the past week, increasingly from uh, the global manufacturers we work with who had inventories in Ukraine that have been released to direct relief by donation, we've been able to have those placed in, in hospitals uh, in and around the country. You know, I was looking at the list of some of the items that you're providing, um, tourniquets, blood supplies, medication that prevents the breakdown of blood clots in case anyone was under any illusions at this stage of what the Ukrainians are now dealing with. Right. I think our main concern, just in general, when there's this big a big disruption that causes mass evacuations anywhere, is that those people with chronic illness that are being managed well, when they get disconnected and flee, uh, what's a well-managed uh, condition can become an acute crisis if unmanaged. And that that is um, insulin for people with diabetes, it's inhalers for people with asthma, it's antihypertensive for um, for people who have cardiovascular issues. So uh, that all shifted. That was the principal concern. But when the civilian population became active targets for war, I think the level of trauma has increased. So that clearly shifted about uh, eight or nine days ago when that's the priority to get the wound care, trauma kits. And, you know, they've had to move ICU patients uh, who are in the ICU for COVID out so they could take care of the war injured. So I think it's really shifting every day and getting worse uh, tragically. But, you know, I think we have a, a pipeline that's built uh, both from Europe within the country and from the states and people have been very responsive. So, you know, we've been able to provide 52 tons of medical material in the first 14 days and are going to do everything we possibly can, obviously, as this tragedy unfolds. We've often been talking about the humanitarian corridors and the challenge of keeping people safe in there. It's perhaps one thing getting the supplies into Ukraine, but when you've got refugees shifting further and further west, you've got the concerns, I'm sure, of your own people trying to keep them safe in order to, to distribute these medications. How are you managing that risk, particularly if we're talking about 
Lviv coming under fire and certainly a high concentration of, of refugees in that city now that then perhaps have to push on to, to some of the border nations. Right. I think we're in touch this week with all of the ministries of health of all the bordering countries. I think right now the priority is on Ukraine, working with the ministry. They do have adequate uh, in-country transportation, although that's changing every day. They're secure warehouses, and um, I think we're trying very hard to keep everything. I mean, prescription drugs have to be kept in a, a closed supply chain, and there's a lot of rules around that for good reason. So I think that's been the priority, even though we're moving fast, to try to do it as, as controlled a way as possible with the Ukrainian health authorities who've put us in touch uh, overnight, in fact, with the Kharkiv City Council, the medical department of the city of Kharkiv, and asked us to respond directly that they would help with the in-country logistics. So I think it's relatively straightforward to get it to the border. There are trains and bonded vehicles that can take it to the border, so the custody of the goods can be handed over to the Polish authorities. And, and we've also worked with some of the Ukrainian NGOs, uh, one in particular that we've worked with for six or seven years, and they have picked up material at the border. They've gotten it in, but it's a high degree of risk and getting worse every day. But, you know, they've, they're taking time to send photos and give us reports. So it's your reporters are all over. They know it's so shifting. But uh, I think we're looking really narrowly at what the medical distribution channels are, which go on the same roads and rails. But, um, you know, when they become the targets for military, powerful military, you know, it, it changes day to day. Thank goodness you had the route set up. As you said, that you were already working there. So at least you had some understanding of, of what you were dealing with and the geography of the country as well. How worried are you by infectious diseases? I mentioned last week on the show, my viewers will know that I believe the vaccination rate, even just for COVID, is 39% in, in Ukraine. It's an additional complicating factor, surely, particularly when you've got, again, masses of people in, in certain locations and at times access to, to basic sanitation compromise too. Right. I think there are a number of infectious diseases. There was a, a, a small but you know, concerning polio outbreak in November, December. The COVID mm. vaccination was low and they were in the midst of their spike. Um, there were a lot of there was multidrug resistant TB that Doctors Without Borders and others have worked on for years. So, the, you know, mass evacuations in crowded conditions are the worst conditions imaginable to prevent the spread of infectious disease. So I think right now, though, when there's an active war, we, we have therapies for that. We re, we've received um, quantities of the oral COVID therapies, which are helpful for people who come down with it. But I think right now the priority really is on the trauma, the wound care, the safe evacuation of people. But uh, also, you know, people are undergoing cancer care. They're delivering babies or, or they just delivered. So the level of people who are vulnerable, um, everyone's vulnerable in a war, but it's identifiable who is particularly vulnerable from their pre-existing state. So I think it's right. kind of trying to cover all the, the bases at once. And thankfully, you know, we do have a distribution center in Netherlands. It's a 14-hour drive to the border. There's substantial quantities of things like insulin that are moving right now. Um, but we're trying to work with World Health Organization and others who probably have a more a fuller field view than Direct Relief does because we're really focused on the medical distribution channels and speci fulfilling specific orders as soon as we get them. I'm amazed how quickly you operate in this kind of environment. I mentioned in the introduction, it's based on donations. The medical supplies, the medication is donated to you. For those that are watching, how can they help? Do you need specific things from pharmaceuticals? Is it government-based? What do you need at this moment? 
Well, it's all direct relief has always been privately funded just because it gives us more flexibility to act right. fast. But we act fast, but within all the controls that come along with handling prescription drugs, which are heavily regulated in every country in the world. So I think that's the, the balance we're trying to make. We have good relations with the, the large healthcare companies in the world. Um, the financial support goes to offset the cost of transport and distribution, basically. Um, and so far, we're okay to we'll roll as much as we can with what we've got, but it's, it's mushrooming. It's expanding profoundly every day. So we've never seen anything like this in 72 years. Um, you know, you think of Haiti or some of these other events. This is a completely different um, environment. Millions of people have had their lives of it upended, and it's already a pan-European effect. So I think we're trying to anticipate where the pressures in the health system that direct relief can help out with uh, will be felt in all the bordering countries. Poland has stepped up in a massively impressive way, and we're trying to help make sure that they don't have to shoulder everything, even with private support to help the Polish agencies that are trying to manage the massive inflow, keep keep the material secure, and then arrange with the um, Ukrainian authorities how to make that as smooth and coherent as it possibly can be, because you can't really abandon the controls when you have a lot of prescription and very specialized right. medications for the people who are undergoing cancer care, for example. Yeah. Thomas, I think that was the line. We've not seen anything like this in 72 years. Thomas Teig there, the CEO of Direct Relief. Thank you for everything you and your team are doing. We appreciate you. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming up in just a minute, the founder and CEO of Ukrainian tech company, Macpaul, tells us why, what he's doing to help his country and why he's staying. Welcome back. The world has been deeply moved by the fierce resistance Ukrainians have shown under attack. And our next guest is one of them. Alexander Kozovan founded Macpaw in Kyiv in 2008. It makes apps that optimize computer performance and are used by 30 million customers. Now it's joining Ukraine's resistance efforts, providing free VPN to Ukrainians and fighting Russian misinformation, as well as funneling money to people in need. Alexander Kosovan, the CEO and founder of Macpaw, joins us now from Kyiv, Ukraine. Alexander, good to have you on the show. You actually decided to remain in Kyiv. Uh, yes. Hi, everyone. Uh, yes, it was my choice uh, to be here in Kyiv. And how safe because, are you? Yeah, how safe do you feel? Uh, well, relatively safe for now, uh, but uh, it seems like uh, the Russians are trying to get into the city. Uh, there are some fights going on just a few miles away from the city entrance, uh, from both sides of the city. Uh, so it's very close now. It's a brave choice. You're doing your best to defend the nation and you're... I was going to call it weapon of choice, but it's not. It's a weapon of necessity is, is information technology. Talk to me about the efforts that you're making to fight what you're saying is Russian misinformation and has been widely reported, I think, around the world. Yes, yeah, so we are using all the resources that we have. We have a lot of bright minds and individuals in the company, and we are trying to create some uh, ads, uh, try to create some articles and spread it across the Russian population as much as possible in order to show them the truth and what is really happening in Ukraine. Because unfortunately, most of the Russians do not see uh, what is really happening. They are, uh, they are <coughs> overblown 
on by this Russian propaganda, uh, which says there there are no casualties, everything is fine, it's, it's it will pass soon. So unfortunately, we have to open their uh, we have to try to open their eyes and show that this is not okay and this will have a major um, major effects on both Russians and Ukrainians. There are videos that are flooding the internet of what's being called crisis actors. So it's people that look like they've been injured in an attack and then the the people get up and laugh and smile and pat each other on the back like they're faking it. And the suggestion is the videos that people are seeing in Russia aren't real. They're, they're done by crisis actors. How do you fight that kind of misinformation, Alexander? And, and do you believe if actually the Russians saw the truth Perhaps they'd protest more. They'd do more. Uh, well, we already see some protests uh, starting in Russia. Unfortunately, there are not uh, massive enough. There is not enough people on the streets in order to be uh, impactful. Uh, so we cannot fight directly this uh, misinformation and fakes because uh, Russia controls their informational uh, uh, delivery uh, very tightly. And unfortunately, right now they have already blocked uh, Facebook, Instagram, and many other sources of information that we used in order to break through this Russian firewall. So unfortunately, right now, we are very limited in the instruments, how, how we can get through that. What do you think is the best way to stop this, <clears throat> Alexander? The conflict? Well, uh, Ukrainians showed and hold the world that we are holding strong. Uh, we have a really, really strong uh, army and we are not going to give up so everyone from each military to every citizens of ukraine is uh, showing the resistance to russian invasion i think it's very hard to win in this situation so it will take some time and definitely enormous pressure from the west from the uh, other countries on the russian economy uh, in order for this war to stop at the moment the weakest point that we have is the air defense. Uh, unfortunately, many um, Russian missiles are hitting cities all over the country, even in the far locations like Lviv, Ivano-Frankivsk, uh, etc. Uh, many of the missiles are get uh, intercepted by our uh, anti-air defense system, but uh, unfortunately not all of them. And we see all of these destructions and casualties among civilians. Uh, and, and, children and hospitals, everything. Uh, so they, on purpose, they are targeting the civilian objects in order to create chaos here and to create as much fear uh, as possible. But it's it's not working, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I, I mean, it's not working, but unfortunately they are destroying all of these objects and it's it's creating a humanitarian crisis, crisis already in Ukraine. I know. Um, I know you were monitoring the U.S. intelligence that was warning that this was coming. And I think a lot of people didn't believe it in the country and outside of the country. But you did automate your business. You made changes so that it could continue to operate. You also got your family out. I'm going full circle now on the conversation. How are your family doing and, and how hard is it for them and you to be separated and for them to see that you're still there? 
Well, it was definitely a very hard choice. It was very hard to explain my wife and kids why I am staying here. Uh, but uh, I'm glad that we had this time to make this decision and to prepare for the war because we did a lot of uh, a lot of preparation, uh, both for business and families, many families, uh, in order to get get well prepared for what could be happening. Of course, we never imagined how it would be happening in the real world because, uh, well, we we never thought that uh, this uh, this scenario will happen. So we never thought how our uh, feelings will unleash because uh, it's uh, this, this is something you cannot predict unless you feel it. Uh, but uh, yet we are well prepared. We have enough food. We have a lot of medicine prepared. We have business operational and this Alexander. gives us some additional Hope. courage to fight back. Alexander Kosovan, the CEO of McPaul, thank you for joining us there. Stay with us. More to come. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 